in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. As we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark together over the past uh, several months and uh, into last year as well. And this morning we're going to be picking up. We took a bit of a break last week to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But this morning we're asking, I love Pastor Mike's heart and the songs that he has selected this morning, asking those questions, is Christ worthy of our worship? Because that's exactly what we're confronted with in this particular passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark this morning, is the worthiness of Jesus Christ. I heard a story a few years back, and I don't remember where I heard it, uh, about um, a, a large church in our state convention who's not very far from here. And they were hosting an event one evening, and one of the church members was out front serving as a door greeter to welcome the folks that were coming into this large church. When I'm talking about a large church, the thing practically has its own exit off of the interstate. It has campuses galore. Its small sanctuary will seat 500 people. Right, So this is a, a massive campus, and this man or this woman, this uh, church member who was out front greeting people was excited to be there, mentioned that there was two very different responses from the different age groups that appeared uh, and that, uh, that arrived at this particular event. There was one instance where there was a group of baby boomers who approached the church, and as they were coming in, he overheard one of them say, isn't this amazing? God has done so much for this church. Look at all of these, these beautiful facilities that they have and, and all of the doors that that opens for ministry in this community. And he was built up a little bit and he was excited to be a part of this congregation and these baby boomers made their way on into the event. And it wasn't much longer that a group of millennials came into the event. And it was then that he overheard one of these millennials say, what a waste. Think about all of the people that could have been helped by the millions and millions and millions of dollars that went to build all this extra stuff. And he was left puzzling this question. Is what we've done here a waste of our resources? Or is it an act of worship? And there's this wrestling back and forth within the church throughout history. There was a period of time where the church was the source of science and was the source of art. Think back at all of the, some of the most famous paintings and the most famous artistic expressions are, are religious in nature because the church viewed God as somebody that was worthy of our worship through artistic displays, whether it be through song whether it be through sculpture, whether it be through painting, poetry, so on and so forth. The church was on the leading edge of expressing the worthiness of God, not only in the artistic realm, but in their buildings as well. They built structures that were meant to express the overwhelming worthiness of God. And you can go and you can see some of those structures. Even here in town, there are some of those beautiful churches that are out there. And there's no question that it's a church. And it can't be used for anything else unless somebody does some really serious renovation. But then there's this, the younger generation that's now giving pushback that says, as we're building stuff for us, what about for the world outside? Is it wasteful or is it 
worshipful. And I think that the heart behind both of those questions, though, is wrong. Think of, look at the, we can worship and we can value the, the size, the footprint of our facilities. We can value the footprint, the size of our outreach. And what I see in both of those is that we in the church have bought into the worldly notion that success is driven by size. That bigger is what is better. We stopped asking the question, is, is what we're doing, is, is what we have, is it even healthy? And we're asking that question even in ourselves, as I find in this, this time with coronavirus and our, our numbers have pulled back. And we're looking around, though, and we're seeing other churches that seem to be thriving at this time. And I've been asked the question by multiple of you, what are we doing wrong? What are they doing right that's getting all of the people to show up? And what God has wrecked my heart with over the last couple of weeks is that's the wrong standard of success. If we're overly depressed because our numbers are down, we're worshiping the wrong thing. If we're overly excited because our numbers are up, we're worshiping the wrong thing. Instead, God wants us to worship Jesus, period. If being with Jesus when numbers are low is not enough, then being with Jesus when numbers are high won't even be in the conversation. And this passage of Scripture confronts us with God's standard of success, what God is looking for. Is it the size of our facilities? Is it the size of our outreach? Or is it something else that is the standard of God's success? Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 this morning, where Mark, Mark writes this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and it could have been given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to, to betray him. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that despite all of our best efforts, we can never derail your plan. It's evident in this passage of Scripture that you are moving things towards the end that you had in mind from before the beginning of the world. That your Son, Jesus Christ, would be sacrificed. 
that his blood would be poured out on us that we might be saved. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would grip our hearts. Lead us to a better worship. Lead us to see the ways that we reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ways that we turn from him and his worth, and instead drink from cisterns that are broken and that hold no water. Forgive us for the ways that we have turned to false idols. Forgive us for the way that we've turned your church, one another, our lives, our pleasure, into the idols that we worship more than Jesus Christ. And open our eyes that we might find in him the surpassing value of all things, that he might be that, that pearl of great price that we are willing to give everything for, that we might be with him. And set our eyes on your glory and make your glory alone our goal. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So just as a bit of a build-up over the last several weeks, we've seen Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And as he has been in Jerusalem, we have seen Jesus judging both the temple and all that it stands for and all that is, is taking place there as being illegitimate acts of religion. He is confronted and he has judged the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem back in chapter 12 as he has found them wanting and he has rejected them as those who reject him and who abuse the people of God. He's given them a greater way of living, but then also we saw in chapter 13 that Jesus looks forward where he sees the destruction of not only Jerusalem, but he sees the, the coming of Jesus Christ in the clouds where he will bring all of God's plans to an end. But here now we enter into a next, Mark's next little segment that he sets off in verse 1 by this time marker that it's two days now before the Passover. And in this next section, what we're going to see in Mark chapter 14, which is the longest chapter in the entire book, is we see these three separate instances where Jesus is, at first, when he comes into Jerusalem, if you remember, he's surrounded by the crowds. And they're singing his name and singing his praises. And what you see is that as the story progresses, Jesus ends up standing alone. And we see the, the, those that were around Jesus Christ fading away, falling away throughout this chapter of, of Mark. And in this particular passage of Scripture, we see Mark picking up on a theme that he has, has worked in and weaved in throughout his gospel. Because here, this worship of this unnamed woman stands in stark contrast with both the animosity of the religious leaders and the obstinance of the disciples. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that the disciples are the ones who are being instructed by Jesus Christ. They are near to Jesus Christ if there is anyone who should have had the insights to understand who he was, what he had come to do, and how worthy he actually it was, it should have been the disciples. But again and again, we see the hardness of their heart get in the way. And that's on full display in this passage of Scripture. But in the last few chapters, we have seen the animosity of the, of the religious leaders building against Jesus. It's, it goes all the way back to the beginning of Mark's Gospel, but here we see it come to its head. And this woman who worships Christ stands in contrast to both of them. And Mark is continuing to expose that theme of the one who is least shall be first, and the one who is first is oftentimes last. As the ones who should have anointed Christ as king, the religious leaders 
instead want to kill him. The ones who should have worshipped him as the worthy savior that he was, his disciples, his most intimate group of believers, are blind. And this unnamed woman comes in and sees him for who he is and worships him for as he deserves. And Mark exposes by the contrast of these two groups. First off, what happens when we see Jesus is worthless. Mark is, is famous in his, uh, throughout his letter of this sandwich kind of model, where he'll start a story, he'll insert a little something, and then he'll come back to the story on the other side. And he's doing that because he wants us to see it all together in contrast with one another. And so verses 1 and 2 were introduced to the scribes and to, to the chief priests seeking to arrest Jesus Christ, but they don't know how they're going to do it. And Mark circles back around to it in verses 10 and 11 when Judas steps up to provide them with the outlet that they need for their violence against Jesus Christ. And so he's tied these two together. And we see in the scribes and the Pharisees and Judas Iscariot that they see Jesus as worth less than he actually is. And when we see Jesus as worth less than who he is, or we see him as worthless, what we find oftentimes is that for those who deem Jesus worthless, he's oftentimes an enemy that needs to be destroyed. And that's what we see in these Pharisees. The conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, as I've said, has been building, and now it finally comes to a head at this particular point in this passage of Scripture. Jesus has rejected their practices. He's rejected their power. He's exposed their religious ritualism for what it is, just false righteousness and empty morality that is used as a means of controlling the people and feeding off of the people that have come to seek them and their leadership and are following after them. It's just a cover-up for their wickedness and their abuse of the system that God gave them stewardship over. And so these have grown hostile to Jesus Christ. And he isn't the Lord to be worshipped. He isn't a, a savior to, to be sought after. Instead, he's an enemy that has to be destroyed. And we see that in Mark's choice of language there in, in chapter, or I mean in verse 1 where it says the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Mark lines up four very dark verbs. They are seeking. It's not just that they're, they're looking. We see this word appear several times in the Gospel of Mark, and in every single time, it is always an evil looking for something. It is always a, a striving to find a fault in someone, or in Jesus Christ in particular. And the scribes here are now seeking, in a malicious attempt, how they can arrest Jesus. Literally, how they can seize him. And they want to do it, the ESV says, by stealth. But in reality, the word there is they want to do it in a deceitful way. They don't want to do it where the world can see, and it says here the reason that they don't want to do it in a way that the crowds can see is because they know that Jesus is loved by much of the crowd, and especially the Galileans who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they don't want to get in trouble with the Romans who are there and who are policing the city at this particular time. Because the Passover festival was important for the, for the Jewish people. It was a reminder of God's redemption of their nation in the Old Testament, in Exodus. And so every year it was a feast that was kept. And what made it special is that the Passover feast required the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. And the law required that the Passover lamb be sacrificed in the temple. 
And so they couldn't just do it anywhere. And so the people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The law also required that they ate the sacrificial lamb in the temple grounds. I mean, not the temple grounds, in the city of Jerusalem. And so that was the time where the population of Jerusalem would double, triple, maybe even quadruple in size. And what happens when you get a whole lot of people together for a big party? It can get out of hand real quick. But when you bring people of different political positions in for the same party, it's a recipe for disaster. And so it was the Jewish leadership's responsibility to make sure that the crowd didn't get out of hand or else the Romans would unleash law in order and not in the good sense. We're talking about Wyatt Earp kind of stuff. Beat it over heads now and ask questions later. And so they're afraid and they don't want to do something in the midst of this time and this festival. They're afraid. They're afraid of what Jesus means. They're afraid of what Jesus can do. And when Jesus, we see, when Jesus stands opposed to what we value as worthy, he becomes an enemy that needs to be destroyed. They value their power. They value their position. They value their prominence. And that is the root of sin in itself, right? God stands in the way of what we want. From the very beginning, the temptation that Satan brought to Adam and Eve in the garden was, you will be what? Like God. If you reach out and you take this fruit that God has forbidden you to take and you eat of it, then you will become like God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that we have rejected God as he has revealed himself and instead we have created gods after our own image. The human sinful condition is that we want to be gods. We want to be the ultimate determiner of what I do or don't do. Nobody's going to tell me how I'm supposed to live my life, let alone God. And so when God gets in the way, we wrestle with him just as Satan did, attempting to knock him from the throne of the universe and our hearts and our lives. And that's the root of our story. That's the root of the world's animosity to Christians and to Christianity. Because Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ stands opposed to the world's desires to be the determiner, the ultimate determiner of how we live our lives. Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ holds up that God has a standard. And that standard is what is true. And that standard is opposed to our autonomy and our authority. And so the world is hostile. But that's not just the story of the world, that's your story and my story. Because after all, Paul says in the book of Romans that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. You see, we have a way, we have a choice in how we respond to the world, especially at this time. Especially here and especially now, when it seems like the culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christ and Christianity. We are in this place where we get to decide how it is that we respond Newsflash, this has been the majority position of the church throughout history. That we have been not the moral majority, but the moral minority. And we can either choose to take the way of the world, and we can choose to respond in, to hostility with a hostility of our own, or we can remember how God responded to us. That while we were enemies of God, Christ at the right time died for us. And we can become the ones who don't push God aside, 
but instead serve God by being like Christ in dying for this world, dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, as Jesus has said already in Mark, and following after Christ. That's our story, which is why Judas is so important Because I don't think Judas at this point sees Jesus Christ as an enemy that needs to be destroyed. He does, however, see, I believe, Jesus to be an obstacle that has to be overcome. Because the the rulers are looking for a way that by deceit they can take Jesus and they can kill him. But they don't know how to do it without arousing the hatred and the animosity and the violence of the crowd until Judas walks in the door. And Judas comes in and Judas offers in this moment to betray Jesus Christ. He's going to betray him for some money. There's something that Judas values. There's something that Judas wants. There's something that Judas has deemed as being more worthwhile than Jesus. One of the other Gospels tells us that Judas was the money keeper He was the treasurer of the 12, if you will, and he liked to pocket some of the money for himself. Mark, however, doesn't really give us an insight into Judas' motivations. He leaves it very vague. Mark leaves a lot of things very vague, and I think he does so very intentionally because there's this big question mark. According to Mark, why did Judas do this? And there is no good answer because with there not being some simple answer that we can put our finger to that says it's this. This is what made Judas fall. This is what made Judas stumble. So if I just avoid that, I'm okay. But the giant question mark that is there and the fact that this isn't just some random guy off the street, but one of the 12 who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who was prayed over by Jesus, who lived three years in and out with Christ, that one had the capacity to hand him over because he valued something else more. And that's a stark warning to you and to me. Why is there a big question mark as to his motives? It's because there can be anything in your heart and in my heart that causes us to hand Jesus over. And each and every time that we decide that we are going to reject God's will and God's plan in our lives and instead pursue some temporary pleasure, whether it come through sin or come through pride or come through popularity or come through power or any of those things, what we are doing in that moment is Jesus has become an obstacle to the thing that we really want and so we set him aside so that we can have it. Whether it be sexual pleasure through pornography, whether it be popularity through lashing out in hatred or anger on on social media or a power or attempt to silence somebody else or all of those different things, or maybe it is just a great big church that has a really good reputation of some really incredible programs. And if that's our goal, then where and when Jesus becomes an obstacle to that goal, we'll push him aside and we'll push him out. And we'll no longer be the bride of Christ. We'll just be an organization of people attempting to serve. Diane Langberg, in a talk that she gave on power in the church, had a very powerful quote where she said, we must always remember that Christendom is not Christ. 
Christendom, this religious system that we are a part of, is not the same thing equivalent to Jesus himself. And so we have to be careful. We have to start with the reality that we have the ability and the capacity in our own hearts and our own lives to turn away from Jesus and to something else. And we must be constantly on guard. Which is why the example of this woman is so compelling to us. That she does not see Jesus as worthless, but instead she sees him as worth everything. She sees him as worth more than all of her possessions and her most valuable possession that is in her, uh, in her care, in her hands. We find here that Jesus sandwiched in between these. Now, John would tell us that this incident happened six days prior to Jesus' betrayal, whereas Mark says two days with the Passover feast and with the the priests, and probably then what is happening here is that it's not a disparity between the two timelines. Instead, this event most likely, I believe, happened six days prior, and what Mark has done is he's put it here as a contrast and as a flashback, if you will, to what it was that ultimately Gave, that was the, the, maybe the, insti- or the instigating event that sent Judas over the edge. As he saw in this woman who comes to Jesus Christ, and she has this alabaster flask of ointment, which is worth 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage for a day laborer. 300 of those means that this one little bottle of ointment was worth an entire year's salary for a day's laborer. And she brings this in, breaks social conditions and social institutions and and, and customs because women were not part of meals with men in this day and age unless they were serving them. And she breaks those customs in order that she might get to Jesus, that she might take this valuable, probably what is most likely a family heirloom because she couldn't have afforded it on her own. Whether or not her family could have afforded it, we don't know. But this is something that was extremely valuable, and she takes it, and she doesn't just open it and pour a little bit on Jesus' head. head. Instead, she takes this alabaster flask, and she cracks it open, and she pours everything on Jesus. An entire year's salary all over him. Think about that. And then you've got these guys off over on the side who snort at her, and don't just snort at her this time. They get indignant. How crazy is that? How ridiculous is that? They actually scold her, Scripture says. You could have taken that. You could have sold it. And think about all of the people that you could have helped. Think about all of the poor that you could have served if you had sold that thing. And Jesus' response is to rebuke them in return. And it's not necessarily that Jesus, we need to make sure Jesus is not telling us that we shouldn't serve the poor. When he says, you will have the poor among you. Because he goes on to say, you will have time to do good for them whenever you want. What is important in this moment is the fact that you will have the poor from this day forward and you have a responsibility to serve and to love the poor. Jesus actually says in the Gospel of Matthew that the way we serve the poor is actually a reflection of how we would serve Jesus Christ. That Jesus says the way that you give a, a, a glass of water or a place to lay their head to anyone who is weak and poor in my name you've done unto me. So Jesus associates himself with the poor and with the lowly. 
So it's not an issue of whether or not we should or shouldn't serve the poor that are around us. What is instead on display here is the fact that the poor will continue to be there. Jesus won't. And so the disciples are worried about being busy for Jesus and being busy in and about the the religious practices of almsgiving and, and serving the poor. She's worried about the glory of Jesus Christ that he deserves. And see, when Jesus is worth more than anything else in our life, his glory becomes our goal. When he's worth less, he becomes an enemy to destroy or an obstacle to to overcome. But when he is worth more to us than anything else in the world, his glory becomes our goal. And that becomes what we are about. And she is here to worship Jesus. I don't even know that she understands exactly what it is that she's doing. She just sees what Paul says is the surpassing value of knowing Christ. She sees in him the worthiness as the Son of God, as the one who does incredible things. And she comes to him, and in this incredible act of worship, she takes probably the most valuable thing that she has, and she gives it all to Jesus, lavishing it upon him in love. She alone saw what the disciples and the Sanhedrin failed to see. She saw what we often fail to see, which is the value and the worth of Jesus alone. What are we worshiping? Where we spend our time and our talents and our resources, the subject of our conversation is oftentimes a reflection of what it is that we're actually worshiping. What do you love, church family? When you leave this place and you're talking to other people, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the incredible people that you get to meet and hang out with each and every week? Are you talking about the incredible outreach that we have to serve the community? Are you inviting people to church? Or are you inviting people to Jesus? Are you here to be busy for Jesus? Or are you here to be with Jesus? Do you find in him the highest value and worth of anything? Because the truth of the matter is, you could write the biggest check in the history of this church. And if you want to, feel free to. (laughs) And it could be worthless. We could build the biggest and most incredible sanctuary in the history of Clarksville, Tennessee, and it could be worthless. We could pull off the most incredible programs and outreaches in the the history of this city, and it could be worthless if it's all for us. Instead of being all for Jesus. Why do we serve the poor? Because we love Jesus. And we love who Jesus loves. 
And Jesus loves the poor and the lowly and the needy. And so because we love Jesus, we love who Jesus loves. We love the poor. Why do we love one another? Because Jesus said that we will be known by our love for one another. Jesus loves his bride. And so we will love Jesus. And we want to be with the people that Jesus loves. And we want to be with people who love Jesus. And so why, why do we gather in this place? Because we get to be with other people who love Jesus, who encourage me to love Jesus more, who encourage the things out of my life that keep me from loving Jesus more? What is going to make us a compelling community that gets people off of online and back into the church? And what is going to get people to stick around and to stay? It's when they show up and we're not talking about us anymore. And they show up and they find that when we're here, we're here for Jesus to give him the worship that he deserves to pour out everything we have for his glory in this world, in the here and the now. And that doesn't start with us looking at one another and us corporately. That starts with you in your home, in your bedroom, tomorrow or tonight. What is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth turning off the television for an extra hour in the evening so that you can sit in his presence, in his word, and in silence? Is he worth it to get up an extra 45 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes in the morning that you can read his word? And even if it's just one verse and you chew on it all day long, is Jesus worth that much to you? Is Jesus worth getting up and getting here an extra hour early so that you can be part of a community, an intimate, smaller community in a Sunday school class who is able to know you and hold you accountable? Or to be involved in a small group who's able to know you and encourage you and hold you accountable? Is Jesus worth growing to the point where I'm not just here to feed myself anymore? I want to be a conduit of his grace into someone else's life. I love Jesus. Because I love Jesus, I love who Jesus loves. And so you know what? The sacrifice of Jesus is enough to compel me to sacrifice for others. And so I'm going to stop showing up for me on Sunday morning. And I'm going to show up for somebody else. And I'm going to serve, whether it's in a Sunday school class or a small group. I'm going to teach. I'm going to hold babies. I'm going to do whatever it takes to see people drawn to and fall in love with Jesus, period. What is Jesus worth to us? What is Jesus worth to you? Is it a waste or is it a worship? I don't know that that big church that was there that everybody had those different reactions to, I don't know what the answer is because I don't know the heart motivation behind the people who made those decisions. And that's what makes it either worship or waste. Are we doing it for his glory or are we doing it for ours? Because Jesus is worth our sacrifice. The same people who look at this passage of Scripture and who see this woman taking a priceless ointment and pouring it out as a waste are the same people who are going to find it very hard to find the surpassing value of the priceless blood of Jesus Christ poured out for you and for me. What this woman does is foreshadowing what God is about to do. Jesus links her act, not with his anointing as king, but his preparation for his death and his burial, where the blood of God was poured out for your sins and for mine. Is there anything more priceless than that?
And yet God saw it as worthwhile that we might know Him, that we might be reconciled to Him, that we, like Paul, might cry out as Paul cries out in Philippians chapter 3, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What steps can you take in your life to get in the presence of Jesus, to pursue Jesus, are you busy for Jesus or are you busy with Jesus? Are you living day to day with that reality of knowing him as your Lord and Savior? If not, then I would invite you to take the steps necessary. And that starts with getting on your knees in silence and saying and praying, God, would you show me the surpassing value of Jesus Christ for me? And let that then motivate the decisions that you make from this day forward. I invite you, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. And seek God's face now. And pray that prayer. God, would you show me the worthiness of Jesus Christ. That I might live my life as an act of worship for him. Take a moment in silence and prayer. And I'll close this in a moment.